For oftentimes it only comes from the lips. And the Lord says, I hear your lips. I hear you saying that you love me. And that's only the lips speaking because the heart is where? Far from me. Far from me. And God wants a person who really will praise them from the depth of their heart. Father, may you bless your word as we look into your word. And may you open our ears to hear and receive from your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're coming up diagonal, going towards Copley, or if you're going down diagonal, going towards East Avenue, you see a little change that took place. Two houses are down. Two houses are down. And it kind of like changes the landscape. You know, it's not the same. It's not the same. And I got to watch those men with a big old tractor or dozer or whatever, but just lift that thing up and grab hold of it and just pull that house down. Just as easy. No resistance at all by the house. It just fell in. Change comes in a negative form that you have no control over. Understand that. When the man come give you a pink slip or say goodbye to you, we no longer need you, you have no control over that. When you're out in a car and somebody else run into you and you didn't cancel your insurance to just liability, you're praying and hoping they have what? Some cover. And they may not. And they don't have a dime to give you for your car. You have no control over it. You may be up on a step ladder, and all of a sudden that ladder starts to slide. You have no control over There are things that can happen to you that really you have no control over. Then there's the positive change based on the very fact if you are a person willing to be obedient and step into it, As God calls you. The thing that has to happen. Is that you have the courage. To step into it. The thing that has to happen. And we use that word over there on Sunday school. To discern. Is this God's will for me? Sound judgment. Is this from God or is this from the enemy? Change is always taking place in your life. Whether you want it or not. How many of you realize that? You know, uh, I wish before I got married that I could have said, I'm going to stay 145 pounds. Yeah. But over the years, change took place. See? Not so much I wanted to change, but it took place. You know. Change is always in your life. The issue is, how will you handle change? How will you handle change? You have a choice. You can fight against it. Or you can work with it. 
you can work with it. The key is this. Are you willing to cooperate with man and God? Because God is always going to use other people to help bring about change in your life. Whether it be negative or positive. So you hear preachers say, keep all them negative folks where? Away from you. I don't want to hear no negative. Don't, it's not coming from the people. It's coming anyhow. You know? You read all them negative friends. Well, sometimes the negative friends warn you. And sometimes the negative friends can sharpen you. Sometimes the positive friends you got to watch out for. Because too much positive sometimes ain't nothing but foolishness. But are you willing to cooperate? And this is the key point. With the people God puts in your life. Are you willing to cooperate? Because see, God's going to use people. The question is, are you willing to cooperate? Are you willing to be one unit? That's what cooperation brings about. One unit for one effort. It is a band together. Whether it's two of us, three of us, five of us, six of us, we become one unit. One unit. Remember that firing team? In Vietnam, you, you were with a firing team. In that firing team, you have a section to cover, and this one has a section to cover, and this one has a section to cover, and that guy got a section to cover. And you're both, everybody's depending on the other person covering that section. And if one man gets shot, all of a sudden there's got to be a quick adjustment to cover that area. Remember that, Roscoe? You get in a firefight? Those sections had to be covered. And when they were not covered, it was time to run <laughs> to the hat. But you had to depend upon the guy to the left and right of you to perform his job. And it says, we band together in order to build something, to work at something. You don't work at something all on your own. And you don't work on changing your life all by yourself. It takes other people working with you to bring about the change that God desires. And he goes on and says, it is to participate. Oftentimes we don't want to participate with other people. And that is letting my guard down. That's letting my defenses down. That's learning how now to cooperate with other people that I become a better person myself, that I participate with them. But society has taught us to be independent and self-reliant. Now that's good to a point. That's good to a point. We all want to be independent. We're, we're not so much dependent upon somebody else. But there is no such thing as a self-made man. Get that very clear. There's no self-made person. Even though society say, be independent. Be self-reliant. That's good to a point. I don't want to knock that. Because as a man who 
with responsibility for a home and children and wife. You should be independent and you should be self-reliant. But what is causing you to be independent and self-reliant is the other people around you. That's helping to build you. To build that independence. To build that self-reliance. It's not something you're doing in and of yourself. Another way of saying this is simply this here. Stand on your own two feet. Stand on your own two feet. Stand on your own two feet. In other words, provide for yourself. Do for yourself. Stand on your own two feet. But in order to stand on your own two feet, guess what? You've got to have help. If you live long enough, you're going to have somebody come to you one day, give you a hand to do what? Help get you up out the chair. For you can stand on your own two feet. You're going to have somebody help. And even now, whether you recognize it or not, there are people who are helping you to stand on your own two feet. Because we always need that help. But if I'm pulling on the person in the chair to help them to stand, they've got to at least be putting what? Some energy towards that that we both can accomplish what we want done for that person to stand. God did not mean for us to live on our own. He made us in a way that we need others in our lives. We need others. And Satan has told us a big lie. You don't need nobody else. You don't need nobody else. That's a lie. We need each other. We need people in our lives. Matter of fact, when we begin to shut people out, guess who we hurt? We hurt ourselves. We isolate ourselves. And then we want to blame other people for not being there for us. But remember who shut the door. Remember who said, I don't want you in my life. Remember who pushed people away. One of the things that we need to be able to do and we need to practice is simply this. Not the pushing people away, but bringing people in. Bringing people in. Because the people you bring into your life, you never know the bridge that you're going to build. You never know how God's going to use them to affect your life. You never know if that's going to be the one who gives your name to somebody for a job. You never know if that person is going to speak in favor of you. You never know how that person is going to assist you and help you. You never know. You want to bring people into your life, into your life, into your life. And as you bring them in, that's where you're praying for discernment. Lord, how far do I let them in? How close do I allow them to become? That's what prayer is about now. That you're praying over those individuals that God is bringing into your life. Who do I really trust? 
Learn to know who you can depend on and who you cannot depend on. Learn to know who's there to take and who's there to help and give. Learn to know people who are trying to really help you develop and people who are trying to tear you down. One, I forget who said it, but they basically said, keep friends close, but keep your enemy closer. Keep friends close, but keep your enemy closer. Because you need to be very much so aware of what the enemy really is doing or trying to do. He goes on. And God wants to just allow us to know we need help. When you go to Moses, there in Exodus 17, 10 through 16, there's a battle going on. And whenever Moses' arms would go down, the Israelites would begin to lose the battle. And Moses is there trying to hold his hands up constantly, recognizing that, boy, i got to keep my hands up if they're going to win this battle. If, if not, they're going to wind up losing this battle. But my arms get what? You ever try to just hold your arms up? They do get tired. And his whole thing is that he needs some help, but he didn't ask for help per se. But praise God that there were those there around him who recognized he needed some help. And they came along and they helped When you get into verse 16, read what 16 says. He said, for hands, the hands is in plural. And I think he's not just talking about just Moses' two hands. Because now he got other hands doing what? Being raised up. And he simply says, Boy, he said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. And the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation because those hands were lifted up. And Israel won the battle. Even to the point that they saw, hey, Moses needs to even sit down and make it easier on us. We'll put something under him and let him sit and we'll hold his hands up which made it easier for them to hold his hands up and keep them up. But the thing is, he needed help. When you go over to chapter 18, you find again, Moses is learning, I need some help. But this time, look where the help comes from. It doesn't come from one within his own per se. It comes from a father-in-law who is of a different belief You could say from a pagan, but he comes and he gives Moses godly advice. Godly advice. That's where this discernment comes in at. And Moses was gathering all the people as the people would come and share with him all of his problems. 
And his father-in-law came along and said, Moses, this is too much for one person to do. It says in verse 13, The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. Because he didn't have no help, he got this long line. And see, even though Moses is up in age, like me now, most of my days, I got to take a nap sometime around noon or some part in that afternoon if I'm going to be functioning in the evening. Because if not, by 5.30, 6 o'clock, pajamas is on and, and they don't tell them when we're going to bed. But the thing is, he didn't get a break. From morning to evening with this long line. And most likely, still not hearing all the cases that need to be heard. And he goes on and he says in this, in verse 14, When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? What is this? Why do you alone sit as judge? Why do you do this all by yourself? Why are you trying to do this all by yourself? You need some help. And understand, a lot of times in life, we don't understand we need help. But if we accept the help, the changes can take place much quicker even. What need, what the people had need of, boy, the change in their life could take place much quicker because they could have their case heard by others very quickly and get on with their life. And he says, why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening. You don't think that there was hard on the people? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Boy, people come to me and me only to seek God's will. You know, we could say, well, that's kind of a prideful statement, but it's a true statement. That's what they were coming for. And Moses assumed he's the only one who got the answer from God. Whenever they have a decision, a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. See, if you get into real life, in real life you can't handle it alone. That's why when you find people with breakdowns, they were trying to handle it alone. When you find people stressed out, they were trying to handle it what? Alone. When you find people got to run to the hospital to get their mind straightened out, they're trying to handle it what? Alone. It was too much. Too much to bear alone. And therefore, God has given us others. To hear us, to counsel us, 
Give us wisdom. Give us guidance. Help us alone. Because it's too much for me to bear alone. And he says to him, this is too much for you to bear alone. But what I want you to recognize, here Moses now, because the challenge for Moses is this. Are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to let go of it? Are you willing to share it? And praise God, Moses was willing to do that. And he appointed others and taught them and then put people up under them. That it wouldn't be too much and that it would meet the needs of the people. So it changed Moses' life. It changed how Moses handled situations. It's changed how Moses handled disputes because he's willing to make the change and recognize it's too much alone. And guess what? It's not fair to me and it's not fair to the people. And oftentimes what people don't see sometimes is not fair to myself, but it's also not fair to my family or it's not fair to my children or it's not fair to my employer or it's not fair to my friends. And he says, this isn't good. This isn't fair. You need to make some changes, Moses. And Moses made it a change because he recognized he needed help. When you go to Exodus 2, boy, Moses again. And Moses' mother in this situation, you could say, needed help. And it was going to be a big change in her life. Because, in a sense, if you read the story, she just given birth to Moses. Moses is yet a babe. Still yet needing to be nursed. And many of you know what went out from Pharaoh to kill all the Hebrew male children. And she makes this basket, put Moses in this little stream, and it runs down to where Pharaoh's daughter is going to bathe. And they see the basket, and they fetch the basket, and there's Moses. There's Moses. Go to verse, I think it's verse 10 I want to really hit at. It says, when the child grew older... She took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Her son. Her son. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, the scripture allows us to know, because she says it. This is one of these Hebrew children. So in her own way, she's kind of like breaking the law, because she allows Moses to what? Live rather than be put to death. So she recognized this child and what she was doing. And she took this child in. And Moses' sister, who was watching all this, asked her, should I go get one of the slaves, which would be Moses' mother, and bring her back that she might nurse this child? And what I want you to look at, here's this mother now who nurses the child But look at the change she's going to make in her own life. Willingly. Willing to, in a way, hurt herself 
in order that she might protect her child. Willing to deny herself the joy of her child that her son might live. Why not take this child and run off with it? Why not take the child and just take off and don't come back? Where were you going to go in that day away from Pharaoh's army? How far were you going to get? So the scripture says this. It says, boy, after the child was weaned, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. Her son. Can you imagine the change that took place in her life? Giving up her own son over to Pharaoh's daughter. As the missionary said, she never got to see her son play basketball or football. She wasn't able to be there and cheer him on and so forth. Why? She was doing God's will. It was a sacrifice, yes. And understand this. Change always brings about a sacrifice we have to make. I don't care how little it might be. It's going to be some kind of sacrifice. And God's going to ask you to bring that small thing or large thing or whatever it is to the altar and leave it there. That he might make the change in your life. We have to learn to cooperate with God and the people he sent to help us. See, Pharaoh's daughter was not what? Not the enemy. Pharaoh's daughter didn't come to the house saying, I'm going to take your child. Pharaoh's daughter didn't force her to give the child up. She gave it up of her own free will. Because that was best for Moses at that time. Now, God brought Pharaoh's daughter into the picture. But God also had the mother by faith put Pharaoh, put Moses in the basket down the stream, not really knowing what was going to happen. But to understand that God bought, you could say in one sense, the enemy to help me. The people sometimes you oppose the worst or you go against the worst. Maybe the people that God's brought into your life to help you, but you only see them as the enemy. Rather than someone who can really help you and minister to you and help meet your need. And oftentimes when God sends people, there was a skid on, not a skid, but a live thing on Moody a few years ago. And I think the man's name was Harry. And he lived next door to these Christians. And this Christian didn't like him because this guy was dirty. He was stinky. He was this. He was that. But God began to work on the Christian's heart. And he began to work with Harry. And Harry began to make changes slowly. But he said, even though Harry was making changes, what God was doing was changing me. Was changing me. 
And oftentimes, again, the people we push away are the people God has sent to change us and to help us through the change. We may not like them. God didn't ask that. God sent them our way. And we push them away. We push them away. We push them away because of this. Boy, we keep people out of our lives because we don't want people in our... Boy, y'all know it, don't you? Don't want people in our stuff. Don't want people in our finances. Don't want people in my life story. Don't want people to think bad of me or this about me or that about me. So what we do, we keep them away. And what God is saying, tell your story. Tell your story. You know, when we were young and we talked about having a stomach ache, and this stomach would just be, ooh, ooh, ooh. Mama would purposely give us something to... Now, while you were heaving and you're over the toilet or over the sink or whatever, or got the bucket, (laughs) you didn't like it. (laughs) But what was in there that was causing the pain and the hurt had to what? And mom gave the medicine. God's giving the medicine. And oftentimes we don't like the medicine that God's giving or prescribing to get it out of us. We have to learn to cooperate with the people that God puts around us in order to really bring about change in our lives. Now, the change in life, you have to be willing to cooperate with others and God will send all the help you need. God is never short on people who will minister to you if you will allow them to do what? Yeah. Now, somebody might say, well, I'm okay. I don't need no help. Understand this. Life can always get better. But understand this point too. It can always get worse. It can always get worse. But God's going to use other people to help either make it better or to make it worse. He uses people. And to make it worse, you need to understand, Satan is a tool of God. Satan don't act independently of God. Satan acts as God allows him to act. And God is the one who really says, Boy, you're going to be out to destroy. You're going to be a thief and a liar. That's what he was. Now he's fulfilling what God says, how he's going to act and what he's going to do. But God has set boundaries on him. And God is the one to say how much he will do. How much he'll take from you. How low he'll take you. What he'll run you through. And any time that I say, God help, forgive me, guess what? 
God can say to Satan, hands off now, I'll take over. Understand Satan's out to destroy, God is out to build up. Satan's out to, des- to destroy, God's out to build up. But it's based on your will. It's based on your surrendering. It's based on if you really want to change and live the abundant life, and even if you're living that abundant life that you think is an abundant life, remember this, it can get better. It can get better. It can get better. But you have to cooperate with the help that God sends your way. God sent Paul to Ananias. Now really, when you take Paul's story there, none. was it Ananias who blinded Paul or Saul? It was God. Now if God blinded him, couldn't God give him sight without sending him to a man? But Ananias is going to use his gift. Ananias is going to be used of God. So God's going to use Ananias. So he prepared Ananias' heart because Ananias said, Lord, you don't know this, Paul. He's a murderer. He's the one locking all of us up, Lord. You done forgot that, God? And God is saying to Ananias, you go to the straight street. And there you're going to minister to Paul. You're going to minister to this one called Saul. And he goes in obedience. Now God could have took the blindness away from Saul or Paul without ever using Ananias. But he's also going to teach Paul a lesson. You need other Christians around you. And this man went and prayed for Paul, and Paul received his sight. Isn't that amazing? But God put an Ananias in Paul's life that he might see. Who is God putting in your life that you might see? Although you see, you are blinded. John Newton said very true. I was blind, but now I what? Yet he never lost his sight, but he understood he was blind. But now he could see because of God. Who has God put into your life that you might see and see truth? Who is it? Peter sent to Cornelius in Acts 10. And Cornelius is praying and, and the angel comes and says, Cornelius, send for this one called Peter. Now understand something. Boy, this is going to be hard for Peter. Because Peter is a Jew. One, it allows us to know in ten that Cornelius is a centurion of the Italian group regiment. In other words, he's a Roman. He's one of these folks that is oppressing you. He's one of these folks that is killing you. And here's Peter, a Jew, still not understanding everything that has happened to him in his conversion. But yet God is still changing Peter. 
So one of the big changes for Peter is simply this. Peter, come up on this roof. I want you to see something. And Peter said, I don't eat this stuff, Lord. And God says, what I have cleansed, don't call it unclean. Peter caught the message. What work God was doing in Cornelius' life, don't call him a Gentile, unclean, a pagan. God had prepared Peter to even receive the men that were coming from Cornelius. And God had to prepare Peter to step into a Gentile's home. Could you imagine the radical change that took place in Peter's life? Not counting even what his friends were going to say. You went into a Gentile, my, you went into a Roman's home? Our oppressor? And there's times you have to stop looking at people. I don't care what their background is. I understand people need Jesus. People need Jesus. And if God's working in your life, then he's preparing you that you might work in someone else's life. To set them free of what you've been set free of by the power of God. So he deals this whole area with Peter and Cornelius. And God's the one. He's at work in the life of both of these people. Understand when you're cooperating with people that God has sent into your life. Understand, God has control of them. God's going to allow them to do no more than what he wants them to do. And you need to be satisfied that, my God, if, if you're a Christian, my God is sovereign. And he has my welfare at his heart. That all he's going to do is good for me, even when it don't taste good. When it don't look good. He means good to me. And believe that. Oftentimes what happens, and this is what Peter had to do. He had to fight against a system. A system that he grew up with. A system hating Gentiles. A system that says, no, there's certain rules that we don't do when it comes to Gentiles. And all them rules had to do what? Come down. In order to step into the house of Cornelius and share Christ. And sometime with us, we have to let all the rules and everything the system has taught us do what? Come down. Cornelius had to let his down too because he's a Roman centurion. He knew Jews didn't like him. He knew he was hated by the Jews. He knew that the Jews saw him as an enemy and they were his enemy. To allow the enemy, in a sense, into his home. That God's will could be accomplished. 
And God had to work in both hearts. Barnabas to Paul. And what I'm trying to illustrate, and I hope that you're getting it, that God uses people to help change your life. That, that, that God uses people to affect your life. And here's that Barnabas. Boy, he goes out and he finds this Paul. He's commissioned to go see one thing and so forth, but he discovers what this Paul is doing. And he begins to minister to Paul. He begins to minister to Paul. It's just one of the people that God brought into Paul's life to help him alone. Just one. Just one. And then Paul went and did what? Ministered to who? To Timothy. And he helped the Timothy to grow in the Lord. He even called Timothy his what? His son. Even though it was not his biological son, it became his spiritual son. Because he gave so much into Timothy's life. And it's in the book of Timothy that Paul said, that I poured myself out into others. And he poured himself into the life of Timothy as a drink offering. God used him. And he used also Timothy to also affect Paul. Just think, if you're just filled with just the desire to minister, but there's nobody to minister to, what does that make you feel like? Suppose you're a doctor, but you don't have no patience. You got all the training, you got air, all the skills, but there's no patience. Nobody's sick. I don't know what doctors are going to do in heaven, but just kind of think about it. All that schooling, all that skill, but nobody to what? That's what a Christian should feel like when they're not ministering to somebody. I got all these gifts of the Holy Spirit. I got all this desire to minister to people. I got all this knowledge to share with people. I got all this wisdom I want to give to people. But nobody to give it to. So God needs and God uses both. Both. Just think about it. And the guy again crosses ethnic lines. Philip goes to the Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian, though, recognized something about himself. And this is the hard part about us sometimes. When you read that story, that here's the Ethiopian. He's up there reading Isaiah. And Philip asks him this question. Do you understand what you're reading? Oh, yeah. I got it. I understand it. No, he didn't say that. He said, no. I'm reading it, but I don't understand it. Look at that Ethiopian. In order for a change to take place, and for him to be baptized, even in that story, what was the first thing he had to do with himself and with Philip? Be honest. Be honest. Change will never take place. I don't care how many people God put around you if you're not what? Yeah. Because that's what God's looking for. 
God's looking for you to break. God's looking for you to spill it out. God is waiting for you to be honest with yourself. Because the first person we deceive is not the other person, but who? Ourself. Ourself. When we tell a lie, boy, it's not so much we're lying to the other person as we are lying to who? Yeah. And the moment we tell it, we know up here and in here is what? Now I gotta lock it up, I gotta get it safe, I gotta put a fence around it. Because now I gotta protect myself from my own lie that will come back. You know that boomerang effect? A lie gonna boomerang. Because eventually it's coming back. That's why the Lord says the truth sets you what? Yeah. It sets you free. You're not worried about the boomerang effect. You're not worried about having to remember what you said and will you slip up a week from now or two weeks from now over what you said. I remember working with a gentleman and I asked him because he was working here at the church. And uh, I asked him, I said, are you making your child support? Yeah, pastor. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I'm taking care of it. And every now and then we would talk about how his life was going. Now I bring that back up again. Because, see, I'm the one who gets the things up there on the payroll, and I can see what's coming out. You know? And finally I get this court order. And I called him into the office and I said, I thought you said you was paying your child support. Well, uh, here's the letter from the court now. We got to take everything but $20. (laughs) I got to call the accountant, (laughs) send him a copy. So what did he do? He quit. (laughs) But it caught up with him. Every lie we tell eventually does what? Yeah. Based on this very fact, God says what you try to hide, I'll shout it from the rooftop. And if you tell all the truth, you don't have to worry about being shouted from the rooftop. (laughs) When you tell the truth, you don't have to worry about being embarrassed when? Later on. When you tell the truth, the people who are working around you can give you good advice. But when you tell a lie, that advice really don't work unless there is truth. And the first thing the Ethiopian said, I don't understand. He is being honest. He is being truthful. And then Philip was able to really minister to him. Joseph, he helped people, but people helped him. People he had to cooperate with. It's amazing about this story of Joseph when you look at it. Because with Joseph, Potiphar is there, and God put Potiphar there, and Potiphar buys him off the slave market, not knowing what he was buying. But Potiphar quickly learned that everything Joseph put his hands to, he was blessed by it. He was blessed by it. 
Now understand, Joseph didn't have anything himself. (laughs) But everything he touched caused others to prosper. And Potiphar gives Joseph charge of everything in his house but who? His wife. And the wife really becomes the thing that tries to dethrone Joseph. Now understand something. Because God gives you people around you to help you, Satan's going to place people around you to help cause you to stumble. Going to help you to fall. That old saying about crabs or whatever, if they see one trying to crawl up, they'll grab it and do what? People will do that in life. They don't want you to leave the group. They don't want you to prosper. They don't want you to get ahead. They don't want you to think that you're better than they are. So they'll pull you right back down. They'll help you stay down in the misery where they are. That's where we get that little saying, misery loves what? Company. It really does. See? And you'll find people who have nothing, they cling together in order to say they have something. People who have, you find a little bit more independence. But people who have nothing, you find them. How does somebody who have nothing counsel you how to get something? Joseph also had not only Potiphar to help him, but the prison warden to help him. Not only the prison warden helped him in giving him charge over the prison, in a sense, but the cupbearer in prison. Now, now, just think about it for a moment. God put Joseph in a hole where his brothers put him, that the Israelites would pick him up, sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and lies about him, put him in jail. God gives him favor. He wins favor of the warden in the prison that he becomes accountable for all the other prisoners and the food and everything that's going on in the prison. But who would have ever expected that in the prison he would meet the one who would cause him eventually to be elevated to the position, the second in charge of Egypt. The cupbearer. The cupbearer. Now, just think, When these men came to Joseph and said, would you interpret our dream? If Joseph would have said, get away from me. You guys ain't nothing but some jail bait. You guys ain't worth nothing. You guys got this and this against you. You guys are really here because you did something wrong. I'm here because I'm innocent. I got framed. Joseph didn't do that. He accepted, he listened, and he interpreted their dream. One was hung, and the other one was returned to Pharaoh as a cupbearer. And one day, Pharaoh, he has a dream. 
And the cupbearer remembers the one in prison who did what? Now suppose again, Joseph would have pushed him away. Joseph would have locked him out of his house. If Joseph would say, you ain't nothing but some jail bait. You're not worth me even giving my time to. But he took time with him. What I want you to see in the people that God put around Joseph, even though it looked like Joseph was going this way, God was taking him up this way. I may not like my circumstances all the time, but God was bringing about change in Joseph's life. And all the time working in Joseph while working in a Potiphar, working through a prison warden, working through a cupbearer to get Joseph where he wanted him to be. And just think, the changes that Joseph went through, the anger with brothers, what brothers did to him. Pardon my expression here. Joseph should have been a bastard case. Joseph should have had all kind of nightmares. Joseph should have had a breakdown. Joseph should have been so stressed out how people treated him. But Joseph was together because he knew his God was with him. But yet God was taking him through all these changes. How do you go from Potter's house, being boy, served some of the best meals, fine clothes to prison, eating some beans and some water and bread and some old stinky clothes and in a stinky old dungeon with some stinky old folks? How do you go through all that? And then lift it back out of there into Pharaoh's, because even before he went to Pharaoh, what did it say that they did with him? They gave him a bath because you ain't going before Pharaoh's thinking. They cleaned him up and put some clean clothes on him before he went before Pharaoh. Isn't God good? Now, then you take Paul. Again, Gamaliel basically helped raise Paul as a young man. Again, Gamaliel was considered one of the most wise men of his time. But look at who God put Paul with or Saul with to learn about all these pagan religions. To educate Paul. Galatians tells us this too. That Paul, when he was converted, didn't go to where? Jerusalem. He went to Arabia to spend time with who? In the desert. We believe with Christ. But I want you to look at the two teachers. Man, Gamaliel, knows about this world, the philosophies of this world, the teachings of this world. Allow Paul to be raised in it. Gamaliel was an expert in the law. So was Paul. Where did he learn it from? Gamaliel. Now God takes all this that Gamaliel also taught Paul, not just to trash it, Then God takes him over here in the desert and teach him personally. 
to help correct what he was learning over there, put it in his right perspective, and then sent Paul out. And we wonder why Paul was so effective. Because Paul had the training of a Gamaliel and of God. And God used it for Paul to argue the issue of circumcision and of law and to have understanding of that from here, how God saw it, but yet understanding how the Jews and men saw it to understand what God meant by righteousness and holiness, but to understand also how the law explained righteousness and holiness, and yet to re-educate Paul and to use it all for his glory. And look who God used. He used a Gamaliel and then himself. That you have to learn to cooperate with both men and God if changes are going to take place. And Paul, because he was changed, changed the lives of others. But it had to first be effective where at? In his own life. In his own life. Very quickly here. If you're going to make a change in your life, in any part of your life, you have to cooperate You have to work with others. Oh, it's not really going to happen. It won't happen. For me to be where I am today, I had to learn how to cooperate with many other people that God placed around my life. I had to learn to listen to them. I had to learn how to take their advice and put it to work. I had to make certain changes in my life in order for things to take place. I had to trust God with some profound things in my life if the change was going to come back and be corrected. Many of you heard the story about my tornado, my Oldsmobile, my my big car. And I even got down and I got very pacific. God, if this is you and you're in it, you sell this car to a Caucasian. Because I didn't know too many Caucasian that would buy a big car from an African American. He not only did that, he sent a pastor from Wadsworth to buy my car. Lord, you're in this. You know, God approved himself every time. You know, he approved himself every time. Hey. It's the people he placed around you that is important. The people around me gave me good advice. Cecil Inman gave me good advice. Stan Myers of Myers Industry gave me good advice. Vern Sir Lewis gave me good advice. It's the people that he placed around me that really helped me. Dr. McGraw at Tacoa Falls College, he helped me tremendously. Dr. Luckwison, who is now with the Lord, a couple of years ago when I went down to see him, I didn't know that he passed. And I went to the house, and it's his wife and his son. And he just passed just a couple of months ago. And his wife said, You know, 
Not too long ago, Gus, we were talking about you because he collected everything about prophecy, about Israel, about Islam. He had all this collection, these new clippings, and he would do all this. And every now and then, he would give me some. You know. He wrote a letter to me because it was the first time in the history of the school that two individuals tied in the voting for, I forget what the title of it is, but to be able to speak at the graduation of the students. And at that time they would give a set of Greek books and the other one, and, and you would speak also. Well, the one guy that gave him the Greek book and gave me the privilege of speaking at the ceremony. And he wrote me an excellent letter. I still hold on to that letter today. And every now and then I read it for encouragement. The, the, the thing is this here. God will place people around you and in your life to bring you up if you will allow him to do so. Amen. What do you have to do with a lawyer? For a lawyer to really defend you, when you first meet with that lawyer... What is one of the things he asked you to do? Tell me the truth. I don't want to get in court and be what? Blindsided. I want to know the truth. I want to know everything about this case. Don't lie to me now. Because I can't defend you if you lie to me. You know. So he's out to get all the truth. You know. Understand, the people around you that really care for you, if you're not truthful with them, they can't really help you. If you're not truthful to your lawyer, you're going to step into court and he's going to be blindsided and he can't help you. Because he's not prepared for that. The doctor, what's one of the first things a doctor asked you? I'm a pastor, I'm a reverend, but they still ask me this question. Are you taking any pills you shouldn't be taking? Are you smoking any marijuana? Are you doing any crack? And sometimes I look at them strange. He said, well, there's pastors that do it. (laughs) They want to know what medicine you're what? You're on. What pills you're taking. Why? Because if he prescribes something and you're taking something else, that's one of the reasons he takes good notes. Because if you lied to him, and he prescribes the medicine and you take it and something radically happens to you, you can't sue him because you didn't tell him the truth. Now if you tell him the truth and he makes the mistake, now you got to sue. But if you lied about what you're on and what you're taking and what you're using, boy, you can't do a thing to him. So he wants to know the truth. A good counselor can't counsel, cannot give good advice unless you're willing to sit there and do what? Tell the truth. Why is it that we think with certain professionals, they demand to know the truth in a sense, but people who you are trusting to help make change in your life, you want to deceive and trick and lie to Not knowing they have a greater purpose in your life than the doctor, the lawyer, or the counselor. Because they are really 
God's divine appointment for your life. And the only way that God is going to function, even with that person, is based on how truthful you are in order to bring about change. Very quickly, closing. Amos simply says, how can two walk together unless they what? Agree. They agree. This is what the truth is. We both understand this now. Now, here's the path we can take. But if you're lying, you're going to be going this way, and this person's going what way? Another way. So in spiritual sense, you're not really walking together. You're not in harmony together. Because truth has not been shared. How can two walk together unless they agree? Agree. Then in Romans 14, 7, it speaks about no man liveth unto himself, no man dieth unto himself. And the next verse says, whether you live or die, you are the Lord. But catch the seventh verse. No man liveth unto himself. You don't live here all by yourself. You can't perform by yourself. Henry Ford would have never been successful or a billionaire by himself. He needed those men out there in the factory building those things. He would have never done it by himself. Kaiser would have never done it by himself. Rockefeller would have never done it by himself. Edison would have never done it by himself. Go back and look at any great thing that has happened and see if it was done by one person. Even George Washington could not have done it by himself. We don't do it by ourselves. And then the thing that we often miss out on in closing is 1 Corinthians 12. We are one body. Made up of many, but we're one unit, one body. God takes the many and makes it one. The many and makes it one. He even brings it down into the area where he says how close and intimately we are. That if one cry, we all what? We all cry. If one rejoices, we all what? What he's saying is this. You're not going through life all by your... Yeah. You're not doing this by yourself. You're not doing it by yourself. And usually when you try to do it by yourself, you're going to be a loser. As long... As Michael Jordan tried to win a championship by himself, he lost. But he needed a Scottie Pippins. He needed some other men scoring. He needed more than just himself. And when he began to really be the playmaker and the sharing, even though he shot quite a bit, when he began to use the other ones that were put around him, they began to win championships. Now we're saying, the king is back in Cleveland and we're losing worse than ever. (laughs) And I think James said it right. 
we're still learning how to what? Play together. We're learning how to play together. Let me share something with you. You need to find a team and put a team around you and play with them. Be honest with them. Be transparent with them. And allow God to work. Amen? Amen. And when you do that, you'll see positive change take place in your life. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you, Lord, for how you have worked in the